Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Um, Today I'm going to be talking about an objection to the doctrine of annihilationism, which is a view of hell that I hold, and it's the view that's promoted at Rethinking Hell, and I defend the, the, this view of hell in, across three chapters in my book, Yahweh's Inferno, Why Scripture's Teaching on Hell Does Not Impugn the Goodness of God. That's Yahweh's Inferno, Why Scripture's Teaching on Hell Doesn't Impugn the Goodness of God. You can buy it on Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle. One of the objections, and I talk about this in the book, but I'm going to go into, I think, more detail than I have in the past, here on the podcast today, is the objection that the annihilationist view of hell just isn't scary enough, it just isn't severe enough, it just makes the threat of hell kind of meh. It's no, you know, it's just no big deal. There's, you're just going, you know, you're just, you're just, you're just going to die. You're just going to fade away into nothingness. That's, you know, not eternal conscious torture, not screaming your lungs out, being burned and fire and eaten alive by maggots for all eternity and unending pain. Now, that's real punishment, but being annihilated? No big deal. Now, uh, the objection as actually, you know, I want to steel man this. So the objection I saved, I copy-pasted a comment from Facebook by a traditionalist uh, who said it just like this. Uh he said, quote, The objection, as I understand it, is that atheists already believe they're going to be annihilated. So if annihilationism is true, then it won't give atheists any reason to come to Christ because the end result is the same. They're just going to be annihilated in the end. But this is not the same thing as saying life is less valuable because we'll just be annihilated in the end. End quote. So... Again, the objection is, he says, the objection is that atheists already believe they're going to be annihilated. So if, a- so if annihilationism is true, then it won't give atheists any reason to come to Christ because the end result is the same. They're just going to be annihilated in the end, but this is not the same as saying life is less valuable because we'll just be annihilated in the end, end quote. Now, I, th- this whole objection, I find it really bad. Uh, just a really bad objection for four reasons. First, notice how the notice how the traditionalists said atheists already believe they're going to be annihilated. So for them, it nothing changes. You know, hey, then atheists they believe everyone's going to be annihilated. If Chris, you know, if the Bible's true, well, it's just the atheist is going to be annihilated, and all other non Christians. But the Christians are going to have eternal life in heaven. So, for, but for them, it's not really going to change. They're going to be annihilated if atheism is true. They're going to be annihilated if Christianity is true and the doctrine of annihilationism is true. But guess what? Atheists are not the only type of unbeliever in the world, and we Christian apologists need to stop pretending like they are. 
There are many non-Christian theists in the world who both want and believe they're going to get some eternal afterlife. Take the Muslims, for example. Um, Mormons also want and believe that they're going to get eternal life, but many of us would consider them heretics because they deny the deity of Christ and the Trinity. But both the Muslims and the Mormons will, in fact, be a big in, for a big surprise when they find out that they didn't take the right way. Jesus. Secondly, some atheists may want to be annihilated. So what? The demands of justice don't magically change if someone wants the punishment. In the Rethinking Hell live episode that I, I'm thinking of right now, Chris Date used this illustration. He said, imagine you have some people who irrationally desire death. Let's say you have a suicidal person, but he doesn't have the guts to take his own life. So he goes on a murdering spree in the hopes that he'll get caught by the police and the judge will sentence him to death. When the courts try him, they find him guilty, and he shouts, Yes, this is exactly what I wanted. I hate living. I don't want to go on anymore. But I don't have the guts to do it myself. My plans were a success. If he says that, is the judge going to say, Oh, well, in that case, I guess we can't put you to death after all. Because after all, it's what you want. Take him back to the prison cell. We'll have to think of something else to punish him. Maybe torture? No, the demands of justice still require a life for a life. The, desires of, the desire of the mentally unstable criminal isn't a relevant factor. Thirdly, dear traditionalists in the audience, aren't you guys always the ones quoting C.S. Lewis's hell is locked on the inside argument? Uh, and you argue that the damned are in hell because they hate God so badly that they want to be to live in torment than to live with Him forever. And so, as C.S. Lewis says, there are those to whom uh, there are those who say to God, "Thy will be the, done," and those to whom God says, "Thy will be done." And so, the gate, as C.S. Lewis puts it, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. I've seen a lot of you guys quote that part from C.S. Lewis's work. And I've done it myself. Now maybe you disagree with this argument, but if you do, then you no longer have if, if a leg to stand on. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. So if a person prefers annihilation over eternity with God, or eternal torture, God says, Thy will be done. But, again, if you're not one of those traditionalists who believe that hell is locked on the inside, then disregard this point as it won't apply to you. But I bring it up because many traditionalists, inclu formerly including myself when I was a traditionalist, argue this when defending the justice of hell. This is one of those sibling rivalries that Greg Kokel talks about in Tactics. Look, if you're going to say that God is not unjust for sending people to hell because people sin themselves and it's what they want and they want it because they hate God so badly, then you you don't this this objection falls flat. Okay, so if if people prefer annihilation, that's God giving them what they want too. Fourth problem I find with the uh, with the objection. 
Annihilationism on the Christian worldview is not the same as annihilationism on the atheist worldview. The damned are not going to be erased from existence upon physical death. They're not going to die peacefully in their sleep. They're going to be now. This is something I. This is something that um, some annihilationists will disagree with, but many annihilationists do believe, as I do, in what's called the intermediate state. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, both describe a place called Hades, as in Luke 16, or Tartarus, as in 2 Peter. And this is where the conscious will be in the intermediate state, awaiting their execution on Judgment Day. They will be full of dread as they sit in their cosmic holding cell. This dread is not part of the punishment, it's just a natural consequence of knowing your days are numbered. Just as the fear of being hanged that grips a criminal in his jail cell the night before his execution isn't mandated by the judge, but it happens anyway, so the fear and the anguish of those in Hades or Tartarus is not something that God inflicts upon the damned, but it is something that they will experience anyway. And we see this in Luke 16 where the rich man... This is clearly a pre-resurrection text because the rich man says, uh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they won't end up in this place. And then Abraham says, if they, don't, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe someone if he rises from the dead. So uh, obviously this is not hell because hell is where, pe is where the damned are sent at the final punishment. The final punishment happens at the resurrection. Um, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, um, John chapter 5. Some will rise to eternal life and some to shame and everlasting punishment. So, both the righteous and the unrighteous will be raised, Daniel 12.2, John 5.29, and the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, Matthew 25.46, which is the opposite of eternal life. If you read Matthew 25.46, you'll notice that eternal life is the opposite of eternal punishment. Well, if the traditional view, if the eternal torment view of hell were true, everyone would have eternal life. It would just be a matter of where you spent it, whether you were happy or miserable. Uh, I like how Chris Date puts it on on Rethinking Hell Live, he says that traditionalism renders the gospel a matter of real estate. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a matter of where you are. It's a location issue, and whether or not you're happy or miserable. But no, he says, the gospel is literally a matter of life and death. Not everyone will get eternal life. Only those who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who don't believe perish. And how do they perish? They perish a destruction of both body and soul. See Matthew 10, 28. In the lake of fire, which is the second death. See Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Now, I'm about to make the point I made when I commented in the comment section of episode 5 of Rethinking Hell Live. 
Um, supplementing the arguments Chris Date gave to Jesse Morell in that episode, um, I said in in the comments section, I, I was commenting as Cerebral Faith video, I said, quote, The objection falls flat even worse if you believe, as I do, that the process of annihilation will be excruciatingly painful. The damned will literally be subject to a live cremation. They will feel the fire burning off their flesh, their eyeballs sizzling, the valley of Hinnom being filled with the screams of agony, before going silent with the ashes of their remains. To anyone reading this, if that doesn't sound terrifying to you, then I think you need therapy. There's something wrong with you. End quote. And that's what I said in the comment section. I believe hell is annihilation, and I believe it, annihilation in hell is a live cremation. So let's get these images out of our heads of God-haters dying peacefully in their sleep. It's, it's, they're not. They're not just going to fade away. But pain aside, I think being bereft of total existence is a great thing to dread. When I got saved, I thought I was saved from eternal torment. But if I believed that hell consisted of annihilation when God got a hold of me, I would have fled just as quickly to Jesus' feet, especially if it's such a brutal way to go, as I've just described. Now, earlier I said that not all annihilationists agree with me regarding the intermediate state. Um, some are anthropological phys physicalists. They believe that humans are just bodies. And, and unfortunately... Although this is rare among Christians in general, it doesn't seem rare among conditionalists in particular. Conditionalists like me, who are dualists and who hold to an intermediate state, seem to be in the minority. But I do think that scripture clearly teaches that there will be an intermediate state. Uh, you don't even have to take Luke 16 as literal history. I mean, it's just all over the place. Uh, look at what Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43. Um, he says, after the thief turned to him and said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Uh, we read in Luke 23, 43, Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. The, what day? The day that Jesus and the, and the thief were being crucified. But they weren't both resurrected on that day. So if they lost consciousness, and if paradise and heaven are the same place, and that's the new heavens and the new earth talked about in Revelation 21 to 22, uh, then Jesus was mistaken. He was mistaken at best and lying at worst, because they didn't go to paradise that very day. Unless paradise is the good place where redeemed people go, after, immediately after they die and prior to the resurrection. So I think on my view, if you adopt the uh, this, this view where the people who are on their way to hell are kind of held in a sort of cosmic prison cell, and they're, you know, miserable there, like people in a prison cell on death row would be, then that makes this even more terrifying because you're going to you're going to um you're going to spend a good a good amount of time knowing that you're going to die someday and there's nothing you can do 
Um, but even if you even if you are an anthropological physis, uh, physicalist, I keep wanting to say physicist. Um, again, look at how I painted hell. I did that on purpose because I know that uh, you know a lot of preachers, especially you know hundreds of years ago, they would paint hell in just this this most vivid way. To, to make it as terrifying as possible. I think you can do the same thing for the annihilationist view of hell. Look, look at what I said. The process of annihilation will be that the damned will literally be subject to a live cremation. They will feel the fire burning off their flesh, their eyeballs sizzling. The Valley of Hinnom will be filled with screams of agony before going silent with the ashes of their remains. And then I said, to anyone who's reading this, if that doesn't sound terrifying to you, then I think you need therapy. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, that's a pretty vivid picture. That sounds scary. That sounds terrifying to me. Now, I want to... I want to point you to the, to an article on... Um, oh, the URL disappeared. On Pear... Parisizomai.blogspot.com. I'll leave it in the description. Um, and his feature photo on this blog post, the blog post is titled, Does Annihilationism Make the Threat of Hell Meaningless? It's, <coughs> it's a big black pit with a warning sign and uh, a woman and a man and their children. And the sign says, Warning, falling into this pit results in in temporary agony, followed by eternal destruction. And the father says, Honey, should the kids be playing near that pit? And the mother says, Don't worry so much, dear. It's just a pit of eternal destruction. That's the, that's the way traditionalists treat the annihilationist view of hell. Ah, oh, no, oh, it's just destruction. It's, it's, that's no big deal, you know. Not like eternal torment. Oh, that's something to fear. But going out of existence after a, after a horrifying after being horrifyingly burned to death and then never ever ever experiencing anything conscious ever again, eh, no big deal. Now in this article, he he says uh, he gives like he gives five of his own points why this objection to annihilationism fails. The Point number two in his article, he says, quote, Annihilationism itself is, is an extremely weighty and serious punishment. Imagine if a family with four children was going on a long, unexpected, uh, on a long expected vacation to a wonderful destination for two weeks. One of the children committed a sin which was serious in the eyes of his parents. As a result, he is not allowed to go on the vacation. Even if there was no physical pain inflicted, this could be seen as a fairly serious punishment. But the unrighteous are not missing out merely on a two-week vacation. They are missing out on an eternity of joy in the presence of our Lord. They are missing out on living in a perfect world full of redeemed people who have been tra uh, transformed so that we are as loving, good, pure, kind, trustworthy, and honest as Jesus. This is a massively huge punishment. In fact, it is an eternal punishment, because they miss out on the joys of eternal life forever. How can anyone think that missing out on spending eternity in the presence of our Lord and His love and blessing is nothing more than a farce of a punishment? Do we value eternal life with Christ so little? that it is no big deal to miss it unless the alternative is eternal torment, end quote. 
I like that last line. That 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 should convict any traditionalist who has this sort of blasé view of, of annihilationism. Uh, do we value eternal life with Christ so little that it is no big deal to miss it unless the unless the alternative is being tortured for all eternity? That's something to think about. And uh, the fifth point in his article is that the threat of eternal torment can actually backfire. He says, quote, It seems so extremely unjust to torture people forever for sins they commit in a short lifetime. Many people feel it makes God look cruel. In fact, some atheists have mentioned the doctrine of hell, of uh, the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment, as an important reason for rejecting God and the Bible. If eternal torment were true, then of course we should teach it. But if it is not true, and I'm convinced it's not, then by teaching eternal torment we are hurting God's reputation and are actually driving some people away from him end quote so what he's saying here is that you want to you want to make hell as horrifying and gruesome as possible to scare people into the, to, into the kingdom because you know because if they believe they're just going to be annihilated especially if they're atheists and they believe that anyway they're, they're not going to be too motivated but actually eternal torment often has the opposite effect they think god is evil for doing such a thing and they refused to have anything to do with him i i feel the weight of this objection i wrestled with it myself uh, as i talk about in my my book yahweh's inferno and i initially i came to some ways of harmonizing that with the justice of god which are problematic for other reasons like the whole sinning for eternity so they accrue more punishment for eternity and therefore it's deserved uh, i talk about why that's problematic in my book again it's called yahweh's inferno pick it up on amazon paperback and kindle and for patrons you can get it in in audiobook form but yeah it's just it just drives a lot of people away I have to deal with this objection all the time, and unfortunately, now that I hold the biblical view of hell, it's a lot easier to do. I don't have to stumble over myself trying to make the unjust seem just. I can actually say, well, hey, you know, if you think God is evil for torturing people forever, well, hey, I don't need to dispute your premise. I can agree with your premise. Your premise... The premise upon which your conclusion, God is evil, is based upon, is false. Now, we're going 22 minutes in. And I usually like to make this podcast about 40 minutes long at minimum. We got some extra time. What, how about we look at some of that some of that evidence that the biblical view of hell is annihilation rather than eternal torment? I've... Uh, Brother Bird has uh, this chart on his page that I've pulled up. It's called Smoke in the Bible, and he's got all of these different passages, and all of the times where sm uh, smoke is mentioned, it refers to the destruction of wh whatever it's what whatever the object or what the subject is. Uh, smoke speaks of consumption. Psalm chapter 18, verse 8. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Psalm chapter 37, verse 20. Quote, the wicked shall perish 
And the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, they shall consume away. End quote. Psalm chapter 68, verse 2 quote, As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. End quote. Psalm chapter 102, verse 3, quote, For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as a hearth. End quote. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 18, quote, For wickedness burneth as the fire, it shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. End quote. Ever-ascending smoke pictures complete destruction. Sodom, fire, and brimstone destroyed them all. Luke chapter 17, verse 29. The smoke went up as the smoke of a furnace. Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 28. And by the way, that reminds me, 2 Peter 2, 4 actually uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an analogy for what's going to happen to the wicked on judgment day or second peter 2 6 but it's in the con it's in that context he says uh, let me pull the passage up second peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 6 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, actually that should be translated Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then God knows how to rescue those who trust in him. Look at that, 2 Peter 2.6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. What's an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly? Sodom and Gomorrah being burned to ashes. Sodom and Gomorrah being burned to ashes by fire from heaven is an example, is an analogy. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the ungodly on, on the day of judgment. Now, if the question, if the ungodly are going to be tortured forever in fire and, and they're never ever going to be allowed to die, how is that at all analogous to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean... You read Genesis 19, Abraham got up the next day, he didn't see people screaming their lungs out, uh, unable to die, and being devoured by maggots and, and worms and rolling around, writhing in pain. No, there was nothing left. No one, everybody was destroyed. All of the buildings were destroyed. It was just, a, it was a an ash heap. Fire and brimstone destroyed them all. Luke 17, 29. The smoke went up as a smoke from a furnace. Genesis chapter 19, verse 27, and chapter 19, verse 28. That's an example 
of what's going to happen to the ungodly, 2 Peter 2.6 says. We go, uh, Bro Bird has, uh, Isaiah 34, 2-12 on this chart, and it says, Idumea, quote, utterly destroyed, none shall pass through, none shall be there, the smoke thereof shall go up forever, end quote. Isaiah 34, it, the, the smoke shall go up forever, that sounds familiar. Babylon, in Revelation chapter 18, verses 5 to chapter 19, verse 3. Utterly burned, in one hour is thy judgment come, thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. The smoke of her burning, and the smoke rose up forever and ever. Revelation 14, 11 is not about hell or the dead, but rather a judgment of mark-receiving beast worshippers in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. The smoke, he says, the smoke goes on forever, not the torment. And in Isaiah 34, that which is destroyed has smoke that goes up forever. Now again, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot fear the soul. Instead, fear those who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And in the context of that verse, we see that Jesus is talking to his disciples about... In the context, we see that Jesus is talking about the martyrdom that his disciples will face. Uh, Matthew 10 tells us all the names of Jesus' disciples. Verses 5 to 14 records Jesus' instructions to the disciples of what they are to do when he sends them out. Quote, Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that town, that home or town, and shake the dust off your feet. End quote. After this, Jesus warns his disciples in verses 15 to 27 of what hardships they are to expect when they go off preaching the good news. Quote, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit spirit of your father speaking through you. A brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to the other. Uh, to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above his 
the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers, and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will be disclosed, uh, nothing hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. End quote. Then we get, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In context, we can see that Matthew 10.28 comes in the context of Jesus warning his disciples of the persecution they'll face for being his witnesses. Brother will betray brother to death. A father will betray child to death. They'll be hated by everyone because of Jesus, and so on. So Jesus basically says, look, don't be afraid of your persecutors. They can destroy your body, but your immaterial soul will survive the death of your body, and they won't be able to destroy that. The destruction of your physical body is the worst that they can do to you. However, God can not only destroy your body, but your soul as well. That's complete annihilation. This is why in verses 32 to 33, Jesus said, quote, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. End quote. So in other words, Jesus is saying, since man can only destroy your body, but God can destroy both body and soul, it is therefore more sensible to not give in to the temptation to deny me before your persecutors just to save your physical life. Do not fear those who can destroy the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It couldn't be more clearer. Now, in John 3, we have John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Those who believe have eternal life. Those who don't believe do not have eternal life. They perish. Well, how do they perish? It can't be physical death. Because everyone, Christian and non-Christian, is going to experience that. So that can't be what Jesus means by perishing. Perishing has to be more than just physical death. Maybe it's death of body and soul, like in Matthew 10.28. And what about eternal life? Well, if everyone had eternal... If, if the traditional... If people are conscious in hell suffering conscious agony for all eternity, they're alive. Everyone would have eternal life if the traditional view were true, but that's not the case. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has life, but whoever does not believe will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Uh, But what's interesting in... The context of John 3.16 is right before Jesus drops the most famous Bible verse in the world. He compares himself to Moses and the staff. Um, Let me see if I can find it here. Um, Is that before or after? I think it's before. Um, Yes, okay, Uh, starting with uh, verse 14, 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus compares himself, the Son of Man, being lifted up to the snake being lifted up on the bronze pole during the Exodus wanderings. And, you know, you, you read that account, and what happened? Everybody, it, the context is Israel was disobedient, so God sent some serpents to, you know, poison, venomous serpents to bite them, and the people of Israel were going to die from snake venom. And they cried out to Moses, and Moses built this bronze serpent and commanded the Israelites to look at it. And anyone who looked at the serpent would not die of the venom. They would, they would continue to live. And Jesus is using that as an analogy to him being lifted up on the cross. Whoever looks to Jesus will not, they, we, they won't die from their sins, they'll live. Now that that su seems to suggest that the death that Jesus has in mind here, the perishing, is of a similar sort to what happened with the whole bronze snake thing in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, that, um, that they will be bereft of consciousness, that they will, they will die, not be eternally tormented. It seems to me that if Jesus wanted to convey the idea that the wrath of God for sin, as opposed to having eternal life, was eternal conscious torment. He chose his words very poorly. Now, we can look at other places in Scripture. Jude 7, just like 2 Peter 2.6 I mentioned earlier, speaks of Sod Jude 7 speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah's fate being similar to what will happen to sinful non-believers. Jude wrote, quote, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire, end quote. NASB, emphasis added. How are, how are they an example? They are an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. But the citizens of, Zo of Sodom and Gomorrah did not experience eternal torment. They were utterly destroyed. My reasoning from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 and Jude 7 can be put in a syllogism. 1. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what will happen to all unbelievers. 2. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned to ashes, not eternally tormented. 3. Therefore, all unbelievers will be burned to ashes, not eternally tormented. First John chapter 2, verse 7 says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John chapter 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, uh, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 to 21. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject to subject all things to himself. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some fulfills as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's a whole lot more I could talk about here. Again, in my book Yahweh's Inferno I cover three chapters discussing the evidence for annihilationism, uh, responding to the very few proof texts for eternal torment. Literally, I, I can literally count them on one hand. That's how many there are. Uh, we conditionalists like to refer them to the big three. Two of them two, uh, are in the book of Revelation, you know, the book where literal interpretation is the least likely because the whole thing is like a dang acid trip because you've got mon multi-headed monsters crawling out of the sea and you've got a talking bird that <laughs> that, that gives an omen of f f coming destruction and there's a woman who's drinking blood and she's riding on the back of a beast and stars falling from heaven and all sorts of crazy stuff. I look, if I if I've got a verse from Revelation that says the damned that or at least seems to say the damned will be tormented forever, and then I've got Jesus in the Gospels, which is most New Testaments would categorize as Greco-Roman biography, not apocalyptic genre. I'm going to take the latter literally and the former figuratively or metaphorically any day. Because I'm going to take a didactic teaching it recorded in a Greco-Roman biography, literally, and I'm going to be hesitant to take something in an apocalyptic book, literally. Because apocalyptic books are not meant to be written literally. Apoc books in the apocalyptic genre are meant to be written in code, usually in times of political crisis, and they're written in code so that the political enemies don't know what you're talking about, and they won't come and arrest you for for talking sedition. Um, you know, the book of Daniel is uh, an apocalyptic book. There are parts of First Enoch that are apocalyptic. Um, even 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 some of Isaiah is apocalyptic. The book of Isaiah. Uh, not, not all of it is, but you know there is apocalyptic stuff in there. So, in conclusion, the whole 
objection that, you know, hell is just no, it's not scary, it's no big deal. Well, for one thing, I think the idea of not existing, not being not being able to experience anything for all eternity is a horrifying thought, especially if I had to die in a live cremation, an agonizing, violent execution before I went out of existence. And then maybe I had to spend like maybe a hundred years in a cosmic holding cell as a disembodied spirit before that happened, and I had nothing all that time to think about but my, but my coming doom. And yeah, I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah, does eternal torment is eternal torment more terrifying? I think so. I think it's rather subjective. You know, I, I've heard some people say that they would rather be eternally tormented if it meant that they could live on forever rather than be annihilated. But for me, I mean, you know, if I have to endure enough pain and there's no hope of of relief, you know, just put me out of my misery. But look, the, the thing is, Annihilation, yeah, even if it's not as bad as the Eternal Torment view, which, again, is subjective, it's still nothing to sneeze at. It's still pretty horrifying. And look at what look at what the alternative to Annihilation is. Eternity in a perfect world, a redeemed world, a world with Jesus Christ, whom, I mean, not spending eternity with Jesus? How much do you love Jesus if you think that an eternity without him is not that big of a deal, you know, because you don't exist. How how much do you really love God? If you know, I, I I hate to say I hate to say this, but are you really following Jesus because of who he is, or because of what you think he'll of what or of what you think he saved you from? Did you convert purely out of fear of eternal torment? Are you not following Jesus because God is a maximally great being and and he deserves your worship and praise? I just just got to wonder if that's the kind of cavalier view you have towards eternal separation from God, you know, and the sep separation in this and the annihilationist view would be you're, you're separated him from him because you don't exist anymore. By the way, one final one final point. Jeremiah 7 talks about the Valley of Hinnom and how it will someday be called the Valley of Slaughter. I think it's Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. Well, that Valley of Hinnom is where the, the Greek word Gehenna comes from. And Gehenna is what is called in the New Testament, it's, it's what gets translated as hell. There actually is a lot of evidence for hell in the Old Testament, but a lot of people don't see it because they're looking for a particular view of hell. If you go into the Old Testament looking for evidence for eternal conscious torment, you're not going to find it. But if you go into the text asking, what does the Bible say is the final fate of the wicked, you're going to find that it says a lot. Uh, Chris Date has a lot of good material on this on his uh, on the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, 
and I highly recommend that you go watch it. You go watch those videos. Very good stuff. He's got a new one out every every Monday, I think. And yeah, it's just just really really good defenses of conditionalism. Uh, he's got a lot of response videos responding to people criticizing con conditionalism like William Lane Craig, Inspiring Philosophy, Clay Jones. Uh, I just recommend that you go check it out. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I want to give a shout out to my patrons. Slam RN, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Uh, and if you would like to become a, a patron and support Cerebral Faith financially, go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. I could really use uh, your financial support. It helps. I use, I use every penny for ministry stuff. Um, I know that with the whole pandemic, people, people have been financially, uh, things have been financially uncertain, but, you know, if 10 people signed up and only gave $3 a month, um, that, 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 that would be something. And you get a lot of good things in return. Too. You get early access to the blog posts, early access to the podcast episodes, early access to the YouTube videos. The YouTube videos you'll get sometimes weeks, sometimes months earlier than the public. And, of course, you'll get shout-outs on the podcast like I just did. And it's it really will be, it really will be helpful. Any, any bit helps. Uh, even if it's a little bit, you know, if I got a, a whole lot of people giving a little bit, uh, that will help pay for things like I pay for the website through Patreon. I pay for my $39 monthly subscription to Storyblocks, which is where I get all my stock video. Well, not all of them, but a good like 90% of my stock videos and stock photos uh, for the YouTube videos. Um... And, you know, I pay for books in my bibliography for the research projects I do so I can put more content out. Because I, al I always research and study a subject before I write anything on it, of course. I mean, only, only idiots don't. So, if you, if you could just become like a $3 patron, that would be, that would help, that would help. So, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, and coming soon, I'm going to have a series of YouTube presentations live. I'm going to be using StreamYard. They're going to be sort of lecture formats, kind of like, kind of like what I do here on, on monologue episodes of the podcast, uh, except you're going to be able to see my face, and you're going to be able to see slides. Um, if you have attended an apologetics or a theology conference during this pandemic, uh, during the past year, like the National Conference on Christian Apologetics in October, um, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics had it all online, and they all, all of the speakers streamed from their, uh, wherever they, 
wherever they were, and uh, they, they used a screen-sharing feature to share their PowerPoint presentation. And so that's basically what I'm going to be doing with this upcoming series. And the upcoming series is going to be about Genesis 1 to 11. I'm going to be uh, taking a dive into each of the chapters. I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping to get done talking within like 50 minutes. So, and then have like half an hour of Q&A. So there's like... You know, so that like all of the each video, each video will be like an hour and a half long, one hour presentation, thirty minutes Q uh, and A. It's and it's going to be live, so you know, live. I just interact with people, leave their questions in the chat, sort of like what what we did with uh, the one hundredth episode that was uh, last week when William Lane Craig came on. We did it on YouTube, and people were able to submit their questions live and so that's what i'm thinking about doing with the genesis 1 to 11 series just mix it up do it a little differently than what i usually do which you know my usually my video style is like it's the same as inspiring philosophy and faith because of reason that's david palman's channel uh so we, we make our videos in pretty much the same you know way you have it has the same feel to it when you watch them but I'm thinking of like mixing it up a little bit and having some live Q and A. Uh, use Streamyard. Use the screen sharing thing. Uh, share my Google Slides. I'm not sure when the first of the presentations is going to be. I'm still. I would like to have all of my slides done before I start uh, working on. Before I start doing any of them, I've already gotten the Genesis one and Genesis two slides done. I just started working on the Genesis three slides today. I don't know. If, um, I, I would, I just would like to have all of them done. So like, I don't have like half of them done and then maybe I'm coming up on the next stream and I'm like, I don't have my, I don't have my presentation ready yet. I don't have the slides. I have to make the slides. Rather not, I'd rather not worry about that, but it, I'm, it's probably going to be sometime in April. Oh, and by the way, happy apologetics day, or I guess not because by the time you'll hear this, unless you're a patron with, who gets early access, uh, it'll be, it won't, it will not be March 15th, but it is March 15th at the time I'm recording this. Um, and this is Apologetics Day because, you know, 3.15, First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, yet do this with gentleness and respect. So, yeah, so, happy belated apologetics day for all of you who don't get early access because you're not patrons but for those of you who are patrons happy apologetics day unless you watch it tomorrow <laughs> in which case still happy belated apologetics day uh but anyway that's that's kind of some of the stuff i have um prepared for the uh for the the for content that this ministry will produce and um i hope you'll join me when that i'm when that happens thank you for listening to the cerebral faith podcast peace out god bless you and keep using the brains that god gave you